You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Robert Carver, Moritz Siebert and I, Nils Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. And for long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and all of the past episodes that you may have missed. First things first, Rob Mort, good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Good morning, Niels and Rob. How are you? Uh, fine, thanks, Moritz. Nice to talk to you guys again. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, it's been a few weeks. A lot of things has happened. Of course, this week we saw um, some positive news in the fight against uh, COVID-19. Uh, and if you look at some of the markets, at least, you could certainly be forgiven if you'd forgotten about all the panic selling we saw only three weeks ago. But that is the power of uh, the Fed's balance sheet, uh, which, by the way, has risen to $6.2 trillion, up uh, about $220 billion uh, from last week. And all of this, despite another 5 million plus million people uh, claiming unemployment benefits in the U.S. this week, bringing the total up to about 21.78 million people in only four weeks, which just happens also to be a little bit more than the 21.74 million people that um, or jobs that got created uh, since June 2009 at the end of the great financial crisis. And also, you know, this week we did see uh, China report uh, a, a quite a sizable negative GDP for Q1, 6.8% as far as I recall. And, um, you know, all of this uh, still meant strong equity markets, uh, lower VIX. Uh, I think it dropped down to about 38, which is down from 80, more than 80 a few weeks ago. So um, with all that in mind, how is, uh, how's your week been, Moritz, other than busy, so to speak? Yeah, <laughs> it was a busy week yeah, indeed. Uh, thanks for asking. But trading-wise, it's been pretty good. Um, made about 1.3, yeah, 1.3% up for the week, uh, 30 basis points down month to date and about 2.4% up year to date. So, you know, some of the meaningful positions that stood out this week, short crude, that is still continuing to be a good trade. Um, as people probably remember, there was the OPEC plus agreement to cut 9.7 or 9.8, whatever the number was. Uh, barrels per day, million barrels per day off of production. And uh, that had caused a little bit of a rally a spike in the, in the week prior, but it proved to be short-lived because it seems that the demand destruction that occurs uh, in the context or in the, in the realm of COVID-19 is so much greater than uh, what they can cut off in terms of supply. So it's still a good short trade. And the same is true for obviously Brent and uh, a lot of the other petroleum markets, gas, oil and heating oil, they pretty much all move in the same direction at that point in time. Um, short cotton has been good, short silver, short some reeds and, you know, real estate indices, all of those were good. And again, like in weeks prior, most of the P&L, most of the positive P&L uh, stems from short positions that I have on. 
and really the only losing position that's outstanding, so causing a little bit of a larger loss than all of the others, is a short position in copper, and all of the other losses I had in other markets were really relatively small. And one interesting observation as I look in, you know, my portfolio is that I have, you know, silver and gold trade both of those markets. And as we've said before, uh, for the most part, they tend to be, you know, coupled and kind of like behave like brother and sister. There's positive correlation, obviously not perfect, but both are precious metals. And um, uh, but right now it seems there is something else going on. I have a long position in gold and that makes money and I have a short position in silver and that makes money, too. So there are there are kind of like the opposites at that point in time, which is just an interesting observation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Rob, it's been a few weeks uh, since you were on last time, so uh, perhaps more things has uh, taken place, uh, you know, in your portfolio. So I'm excited to hear how how things are uh, planning out for you. Uh, yeah, it has been a few weeks. Um, I, I was just looking at my performance uh, since the guy last spoke to you guys, and uh, in terms of the bottom line, to be honest, not very much has happened. I'm at one percent, which is you know pretty pretty close to flat and that does hide a little bit of action that happened so I think the few the first few days after I spoke to you guys um, was actually making pretty pretty reasonable money and actually hit a high watermark on the 18th of March um, and uh, I guess what happened there was you know we still had the sell-off going on and uh, I was positioned uh, to, to go short um, and starting to pick up on some of those trends and then of course the market reversed and we've we've, we've pretty much seen a one-way rally since then so you know those short positions um, would have started to lose a bit of money and then been cut. Um, but you know one of the more, most interesting things looking at my PNL is the real lack of action from the financial markets. Um, I mean, you guys have been talking about a lot of commodity markets, and it's really the same for me um, because I'm just running my own money. My positions generally are, you know, obviously going to be a lot smaller than you guys, and and in quite a lot of the time because the volatility has been so high. Um, there's not really the risk has been so great. I've not really had enough, um, you know, of a sort of conviction to actually put a position on a lot of financial markets in particular. Um, so uh, whereas in the commodity markets, you know, the risk has been a bit lower. The, the trends are stronger. So, so yeah, just looking across uh, my most profitable market actually uh, was a short position in in lean hogs. Um, also made um, a bit of money um, in. Um, in some of the, the kind of more esoteric uh, bond, the Korean bond markets, actually, that's a little bit of money there. Um, and uh, yeah, my biggest losing market over the last month um, was in fact uh, the the wheat market. So uh, so yeah, not not really, you know, uh, huge movements in in the financial markets, but but actually, you know, the the, the profitability has been been pretty flat and pretty pretty unexciting, really, in in many ways. Yeah, and no, I'll pick up on that just a second, but just maybe to give a brief run through. It's funny how you say that, uh, given the size of the difference and or the the size difference, I was meant to say uh, in terms of say your portfolio and and the portfolio we run. Actually, uh, two things that strikes me is one, yeah, for, certainly for this week, our best contributor was Lean Hogs as well, and the worst one was wheat as well. So I mean, uh, you know, even though there's difference in size, uh, it seems like our our models are not that different uh, in terms of picking up opportunities. So I mean, it was a good week for us as well, uh, made a bit of money um, also made, uh, you know, um, are, are up a bit for the month as well of, of April. Um, 
of course, a lot of the action still was energy. Uh, that was a good sector for us. Fixed income did okay. Um, equities were flattish, maybe a little bit up. Um, uh, volatility did, uh, you know, added a little bit of positive contribution. And, and I would say currencies was pretty mixed, probably flat overall. Um, as you mentioned on your side, Moritz, you were making money in gold and silver. Uh, we're not quite that clever, apparently, because we're losing money in gold and making money in silver. Um, but certainly also copper causing a little bit of a challenge for us this week. But overall, uh, a small up. And one of the things that I, when I was listening to your um, your kind of run-throughs, both of you, um, here we are sitting in, you know, mid-April. We just had like whatever, 36% uh, drop off from the high in, in the S&P and even more so in other markets. And then we've seen this ferocious rally in equities, uh, to say the least, um, where some of the markets like the Nasdaq is hardly down for the year anymore. And typically for me, my gut instinct will be, oh, that's not going to be good for trend followers when you see something like that. That's kind of like a super uh, shallow V-shaped recovery if, if you ever saw that. But actually, all both of you and on our side as well, it's been pretty calm. It's been pretty uneventful, no drama. Uh, performance actually a little bit positive. Um, and... Um, so to me, it's a little bit unusual. I mean, obviously very pleasing to see that how the industry, and I think this is an industry-wide thing, it's not just the three of us, um, that trend followers in general, uh, if, if we allow uh, you to be brought into that, I know you do a few other things, uh, Rob, of course, on your side, but but I think the industry and the strategy has stood up really well uh, through this crisis. I mean, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, have you something you've noticed, something that people have commented on uh, in, in your conversations? Maybe I go first on that. Just touching on, on lean hogs, I was just looking at the numbers. It is a very good market for me as well. It's actually one of the best performing markets this year on the short side. Uh, just this past week, I mean, I was re only reporting this past week's number this past week. Lean hooks didn't do too much in my portfolio, but maybe, you know, our position sizes are very different there. But, you know, what 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 I find really interesting, and, and, and this is, you know, one of the things that's repeating is uh, when you say, Niels, you're on the opposite side, or I'm not sure if you said opposite side of the gold and silver positions, right? So we're all trend following traders, but it shows the diversity, diversity that, you know, exists within the space because we're trading different time frames, we weigh positions differently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there you go. There's really a strong case to be made if you are, say, a larger allocator or a larger investor who invests in external CTAs to not just pick one, but pick a couple. Because, and, and, and even, you know, they're all positively correlated because they're all trend-following CTAs and maybe their correlation is 0 0.7, 0 0.8 or whatever the case may be. But it shows, especially during, you know, times like these, there is a dispersion in performance and that is, you know, that uncorrelated or less positively correlated behavior is a good thing for clients' portfolios. Yeah, I mean, I think just picking up on that, I mean, we are long gold, we are short silver, so we have the kind of the same position, okay. but there must have been something during that week, maybe with changes in positions that have caused us to uh, lose some money in gold. I right. don't know what the net move for gold was this week. I have, frankly, I don't look at the charts uh, on a regular basis, so you probably know that much better than I do. But those are just the numbers that I can see from from our output. Um, but but you're right. I mean, the dispersion has been very 
evident uh, this time around uh, when we looked at uh, the numbers, obviously, last time the three of us uh, talked, uh, we didn't really know how the month of March was going to pan out. What it did turn out to be is a month where you had, uh, even among, I would say, established managers with 20-year-plus track records, you had numbers you know, up 30 to down 15 or so. That's what I saw in one month. I mean, that's that's huge, really. And it shows you not just what you mentioned, Moritz, that there are many ways to uh, to trade uh, from a trend-following perspective. Obviously, the market you choose and timeframes and all of those good things will uh, have a big impact on your returns. Um, but I also think that um, this myth that I think a lot of um, um, investors, frankly, uh, might have where they look at correlations and they say, oh, yeah, but, you know, Done is correlated 0.7 with Moritz, so why should I have both? Well, you know, having a decent sized correlation doesn't mean you're going to have the same performance. Uh, so, uh, so that that is definitely something I think uh, people will take note of uh, in in the month of March. And and as uh, you know, as we say, you need diversification across uh, you know traditional asset classes. You certainly also need diversification among managers. Maybe not, you know, you don't need 20 trend followers, but you. I would say you need a, a few. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one interesting thing is that when you've had a month like we've just had, the the people that are going to do really well are the people who aren't diversified. Um, so, you know, if you were say trading just just the financials and also trading them pretty quickly, you would have had absolutely an amazing month. Um, on the on the other side, if you weren't diversified in the other direction, so you were trading just the financials but you were trading them a bit slower you would have suffered from, you know, this absolutely evil whipsawing effect. You know, you'd have just gone short mid-March only to give, you know, to get absolutely hammered as the market rallied against you. Um, so it's the, the people who are being sensible and who are, who are not just, just doing that one thing, that one trick pony, um, and not listening to, you know, sometimes a call from investors to say, you know, why aren't you f like fund XYZ? You know, they were up 22% last month. Um, well, yeah, because because they they're only trading like six financial markets, and they just happen to have a sweet spot on the speed. I'd much rather be the guy who, over the last four weeks, made like one percent, um, because I'm diversified ac across asset classes and across time frames. Yeah, I I, I agree with that uh, completely, Rob. I think another thing that I've been thinking about what can cause this uh, dispersion in returns, and of course we don't know exactly what what other firms are are doing, even though we. We, we know them well, and many of them have been on the podcast explaining what they do. But still, my, my gut feeling is that what worked really well uh, in uh, March, um, let's just call it March, uh, in terms of the, the, the crisis, were systems that were, um, if I can put it this way, more simple in its structure, but I don't mean it in a negative way, but things that were just really... For example, just frankly, just price based, right? If you, if you had breakouts based on price and you got into those trades and and you just hang on, you know, hung on to to those positions, you would have done really well. I think once you start complicating matters a little bit, um, and and frankly, I think that some of the people who maybe and and this is speculation on my side, but I think some of the people who are doing some kind of clever AI stuff, uh, which they say is the best thing since sliced bread. Um, I think they may have found that maybe they didn't quite um, know how to handle a situation like this. So, so I have a feeling that the more pure 
let maybe that's a better word, more pure trend following based strategies were the ones that did well this time. Doesn't mean that that's always the case. We've seen many times where that's not the case. And let's see how some of them um, will be handling this uh, reversal if it continues. I mean, it may not. Um, so, um, so that those are the thoughts that I've had about uh, the dispersion. And yeah, returns. I mean, Niels, I've actually got some hard data, admittedly okay, very small cool. sample points to, to back up your intuition there. So, um, as you guys know, I, I used to work for AHL, which is part of a, a bigger hedge fund organization called the Man Group, and and they released their um, they're a publicly listed fund company, uh, and they released their their uh, quarterly numbers yesterday. Um, and uh, I was just looking at the the quarterly performance for three of the flagship funds for AHL. So um, there's a fund called uh, Diversified, which is your kind of real old school, simple trend following in the more traditional futures uh, asset classes. Uh, and in the three months to the end of March, that was up 8.6%. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. Uh, and then there's a fund called Evolution, which uh, is still doing old school kind of trend following but it's doing it across uh, a wider set of less liquid markets. Um, so, you know, OTC markets, um, frontier markets, you know, a lot a lot less away from your kind of, um, you know, your, your main futures markets. Uh, and that's traditionally been um, a very successful fund for AHL. And in fact, a lot of people have tried to copy that, um, that kind of fund. So you've seen people like uh, Systematica, uh, and, and newer startups trying to set up that kind of fund because it's done very well and investors have absolutely loved it. Uh, and that was actually exactly flat for the first three months of March. Okay. Uh, and that's a, that's basically because in those in those markets, those are the markets where when you get a liquidity kind of tap turning off, you know, you're in real trouble. So you make the money while the liquidity is there, but then of course when the liquidity trap tap turns off, you're in a, a more difficult situation than you would be in a traditional futures market. Mm. Um, and then they've got a fund called Dimension, uh, and that is similar, more similar to the kind of more clever, clever stuff that you were talking about. So I know that there's a bit of AI in there. I know there's some funky stuff. It's more of a multi-strat fund and less, much less pure trend following. And that was actually down 4.4% in the three months to the end of March. So, you know, that's just three data points. But I, I think you're, you're not far off there in, in your intuition about what's driving some of this dispersion. Rob, maybe maybe you know, maybe you don't, but um, you know, HL diversified. This is the flagship, you know, long long track record. We all we all know that one, and it's. Uh, I'm not sure if it's really pure pure trend following, but certainly a large part of it is trend following. And would you say that when you make the comparison diversified versus um, evolution, that it's kind of like the same systems, but evolution has more markets, more of the OTC markets, more of the like more difficult to access markets, and therefore. We can make the argument, oh, it's really because of the markets that the performance different exists and it's not because of different trading styles. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there's a huge caveat here, which is that it's been a few years since I've worked there. Um, right. But and the other, there is another difference, which is that because um, a lot of these OTC markets are more expensive to trade, um, you, you generally speaking have to trade them slower. Right, um, and it might be that that actually was responsible for some of the underperformance as well, because mm. it might be that in the traditional futures markets you can run the same systems, but you can run them faster because you can be a bit more nimble in getting in and out of your position. So that may also have been an, an effect. Um, but yeah, I just uh, it's not. I don't think, based on what I know and uh, obviously from working there a while ago now, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say it's pretty much the same kind of stuff. Uh, that's in diversified, which is, you know, 
probably 70, 75% trend following 20, 25% carry and other things, um, but apply to a different set of markets. That That's pretty much still the premise of that product. That's my understanding. Whereas Dimension is definitely the kind of wackier stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it also kind of makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense that um, there has to be a price to pay, right? I mean, if you're willing to take on the you know, liquidity risk, if we call it that, from going into these smaller markets and, and maybe even going off exchange. I mean, if if that was just always going to be a good thing, more people would do it. Um, but there is a risk. Uh, you know, we can't... A lot of people think that but even with the cleverest people and, and, and 100 PhDs and what whatever, you can remove risk from your investments. I don't think you can, you know. Uh, you can... You can, you can um, uh, postpone it maybe or, or if that's the, the right word, but you can't remove risk. I think another example of that, um, just to jump uh, a little bit around in some of the news that I picked up, is what's going on at Renaissance Technologies. I mean, we all acknowledge the fact that they are the best of the best. We, we, we all probably read the book and, and it's incredible what they've done. And then you see that they're um, institutional fund for, for their clients uh, was down, I don't know, 24% or whatever the number was, uh, either in March or in Q1. I can't remember. I think you uh, sent some information from um, from uh, one of the newspapers, Moritz, so you can correct me in a second. But so you see, you know, even with all that computer power, once they're in a, play, you know, a, a level playing field with many other firms, their performance wasn't outstanding. Then, on the other hand, then you go inside their own little black box, the medallion fund, which is just for employees, smaller uh, asset base. So they can, uh, I'm sure, do things that you can't do with 50 billion under management. And that's up 20% plus or whatever it w the number was. Uh, of course, I think morally or, or from a business uh, perspective, I think it's, it's a little bit challenging that that you know, while you're killing it in the markets, your clients are getting killed in another product. I mean, I think that's hard to sell, um, but clearly not in their case. But um, but it's interesting, and I think again, it goes back to this point that we, however clever we we think we are, we can't remove risk uh, really. Correct. Just you know, regarding the numbers, this is a an article that I picked up yesterday evening uh, in the Wall Street Journal. So the numbers are for the Medallion flagship fund, which is their internal product, right? No external investors allowed in. It's up 24% year to date through April 14th. And this is, listen to that, this is after 5% management fee and 36% performance fee. Ha ha. So, and uh, um, the Renaissance Institutional Equities Fund, the refund, which is available and accessible to external investors, is down 10.4% as of the same date. Can I just very briefly defend Renaissance uh, as an option? Oh, no, we we're, we're not picking on them. <laughs> you can defend I, them. We, we love them. It's an observation. Yeah. Um, the, um, the Renaissance uh, Equities Fund is a long-only fund. Um, and uh, obviously the Medallion Fund, we don't really know what it does, but I'm pretty sure it's long-short. Uh, probably shorter time frames, trading futures and other things as well. So it's not really an apples for apples comparison. Uh, That's right. you know, if, if Renaissance had a, an internal long only equities fund, then perhaps it would be fair to say, you know, uh, to make that comparison. Um, you know, I, it's, you know, we can talk about the moral issue of why the medallion fund isn't open and why 
they, they still continue to run that and presumably spend time and uh, effort on it while also running money for outside clients. Um, but uh, yeah, comparing the numbers directly is probably a little unfair. No, and my point was not comparing the numbers of, of those two. Mine was more to say, okay, you have a, an equities product and it didn't do that much better than the market itself. So, you know, even with all their power and, and they are really clever people, you know, there are certain things you just can't, um, you know, change. Yes, but you know, just um, because we we touched on AHL diversified, you know, this is a fund with a more than twenty year uh, record, and um, you know, I'm just looking at the long term chart of that thing, which is net of fees as well, and it just this this year made a new all time high, and uh, you know, of course, there have been difficult periods of time in the last decade, which is why we've heard so many times trend following is dead, right? And uh, maybe when you had looked at the chart three years ago, you would have said, oh, yeah, that looks pretty dead. But boom, there you go. It's at a new all time high. And, you know, it just it shows the staying power of those strategies over time. And usually not always, there's no guarantee, but usually they tend to be there when you need them. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do every year, um, the UK tax year ends uh, at the beginning of April. So I look at I look at my performance over the year and I also compare myself to a couple of benchmarks. Um, and one of those is the uh, um, SOCGEN CTA index. And I always beat that, like every single year. Um, and I'm just, you know, one guy with a laptop. Um, and then I also compare myself to AHL, and that's usually a more humbling experience. Um, so over, over the last 12 months, I did actually manage to beat them on a risk-adjusted basis, but that's pretty rare. You know, they're, 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 they, they've done pretty well over the long run, definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talk about dispersion and, and correlation and, you know, um, I think a lot of the time when people beat up the industry, they look at things like the, you know, the SGCTA index, uh, which is, you know, is not not is not done very well. It's true, um, but um, the you know the, the better managers um, have have had very good performance over the last few years and over the long term. Yeah, of course, I'm sure a lot of people now are going to ask you what kind of laptop is that since it's doing so well. But there we are. <laughs> Um, anyways, I know Rob, you um, you had something also that you had picked up on that you wanted to um, discuss, um, and I think that uh, was a little bit um, up the streak that always gets us going. Something to do with volatility and scaling and stuff like that. So why don't you uh, tell us what you had on your mind uh, when it comes to uh, to these topics? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of mentioned earlier that that. Um one of the reasons my positions are quite a bit smaller than you guys to the extent that I don't have a position in a lot of markets is because, you know, the basic fundamental thing we do is is we we scale our positions inversely with volatility. Um, and we also um, scale our positions um, inversely with, with the conviction of our, of our forecast. Um, and um, I, I always found this very interesting because once you have that kind of hat on, that kind of mindset on, it's, it's a it's quite difficult then to, to to sort of be out there in the rest of the world where we're especially the last kind of couple of months where, where people are talking about things like you know what what percentage of, of bonds and equity should we now be running you know um, we should we be having cash in our portfolios uh, and, and you know the sort of difference between having to have that kind of efficient frontier mindset of, of portfolio allocation um, versus the, the the much simpler world that we live in really which is you know <laughs> The vol's gone up. Let's reduce our position. Conviction's gone down. Let's reduce reduce our positions. And because I run both um, a you know a, a kind of classic um, CTA uh, futures portfolio, but also a long only portfolio, 
um, I did. I have found it interesting looking at the the way those those two things have, have behaved differently. Um, and um, you know, we were we were talking briefly before the show about um, people who are able to kind of swoop in with with cash available and and take advantage of of the price to depress prices. I mean, we have seen a rally um, overall, but one thing that really happens when you have a massive sell-off is it's an indiscriminate sell-off. Um, and a lot of things get get beaten down more than others. Um, and even when when the rally comes back, there's often quite a long time before you know. So let's just assume that the, the bottom was on the 18th of March, which I think is unlikely to be honest. But that that's that's a, a longer topic we can discuss maybe. But if you assume now that the market is now in some kind of slow, you know, sort of kind of bull market, there's still a lot of stuff out there that that looks really cheap because things have been sold off primarily for reasons of liquidity. Um, so just looking across equity markets, for example, it, the US has almost shrugged off um, this this bear market. Um, and you, Niels, you mentioned the figures for the the S and P and the Nasdaq, which is which is rallied by even more. But if I look at closer to home at the FTSE 100, um, you know that's still down at the levels of about four or five years ago. Um, and uh, you know the, the, the on a valuation basis, it, it certainly looks a lot cheaper. Um, so that there's there's kind of it's kind of interesting to I think to to compare to think about the systematic issue of position sizing, which for the futures trader is very very easy, but but for the the long only guys is a lot more complicated. Cause, you know, so if you're just used to having um, a kind of risk parity portfolio 60 40 over the last month you know what what do you do do you have more bonds do you have more cash do you do you reduce your your equity positions um you know and and uh, i think the other thing that's that's interesting with these kinds of funds is a lot of them do monthly rebalancing um and um because we've seen these very savage moves um i think monthly rebalancing you know the exact date you're rebalancing could have had some some interesting effects um and, and sort of tying into that, sorry, this is this is all a number of thoughts I've been thinking kind of coming together. Um, I think there's been a lot of debate as to whether monthly rebalancing was responsible for um, you know some of the the moves that we saw in in equities and bonds because obviously, if you're running a risk parity fund, equities sell off a lot. Um, if you're not doing vol scaling, the end of the month you've then got to buy a load of equities. Um, and perhaps even if you are doing vol scaling, you've got to buy a lot, buy a lot of equities because the, the the vol might not have jumped up as much as the as the price has sold off. So uh, so yeah, I was just just wondering what whether you guys had any had any thoughts in that direction because the, the futures kind of does it's an automatic process. It's very simple. The leverage is automatic. But but what can we what lessons can we give the guys on the other side of the street? What 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 sort of help can we give them um, in in times like this? In terms of position sizing, what lessons are there from the kind of the the, the systematic futures world to the, the guys on the the systematic long only world? Moritz, do you want to go first? Well, one thing I um, what what you said with the rebalancing going on, and a lot of the rebalancing tends to happen toward the end of a calendar month or at the start of a new calendar month. This is what's being reported, and I think from. Uh, my conversations that I had have had in the past with institutional investors and allocators, it seems to be the case that that is true. That seems to be, for whatever reason, a point in time where people touch their portfolios. And like you say, Rob, because equities had sold off so massively vis-a-vis -vis other asset classes, that actually leads to a rebalancing on the positive side for equities. So they're buying equities. And one thing that 
you know, I would certainly recommend to do is uh, to distribute and dilute and reduce the timing luck of those decisions. I'm not saying that they're all doing it in one day, like on the last business day of the month, but really those processes, those rebalancing processes, you can do portions of your portfolios, a certain percentage in one week or on a random day in a given week and a little bit more in the other week and the next week and so on, right? So you distribute that effect more over time and you're much less dependent on picking one or two or three days a month, which may be really bad for you. Of course, they may also be really good for you, but what it does, it, it, it introduces some idiosyncratic volatility that you can reduce by just, you know, by spreading the process out over a longer period of time. Um, so that's that's one thing. Now, volatility scaling is uh, not necessarily a thing that, you know, institutional investors can do because it may result in leverage, right? Having the same volatility in bonds uh, and the same volatility in equities means that you're adding much more bonds to your portfolio. And not all of those portfolios, for instance, when you look at more like those pension and UT type of term portfolios can use leverage to the extent that we're doing it when we have, you know, equal sized or equal vol or ATR based position sizes, at least at the start of the trade. Um, so it, it may not be, it may not be available to them. See what I mean? Maybe some of them can do it, but certainly not everyone can do it. So I've got a couple of thoughts. So on the, on the rebalancing side, so I, I do, th I mean, one reason I know that these effects exist is actually I have done research at looking at them as a potential source of alpha, um, you know, and uh, certainly... Sure, the turn of the month effect, exactly. where you get all the reportings from the banks. I mean, they send out their reports. It's like, look, we're, we're seeing another 200 billion of equity flow, uh, you know, at the close of this day. And of course, it's the close, right? It's, ind it's the indiscriminate passive buying. You know, it is there. We know it exists. It's just, you know... Strangely, that it still exists in that size. Well, I have a theory for one reason why it exists, which is that um, if a lot of these passive ETFs are running off indices, and the index construction actually specifies an end of the month rebalancing. Um, so if, if you're the, the owner of that ETF, you've either got to do the rebalancing in a more sensible way over several days, um, and but basically risk having a high tracking error, um, or you just kind of just do everything, you know, in the closing auction on the last day of the month and get absolutely murdered. So, um, so that that's that, that's one side of it. But just coming back to the, the volatility, I mean, do we think that we could we should be saying to to guys who can't use leverage, okay, who can't use leverage, but that means also taking the the kind of lessons of, of volatility sizing into effect. When you have these this, these big rises in risk, you really ought to be um, going from you know sixty forty to something like. 40, 40, 20. In other words, reducing your equity position, but also going into cash. Because that's what that's what the maths of the volatility sizing says you should do. I, yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I miss Jerry. Uh, I, um, you know, with my trend following portfolio, and I've said this before, you know, there's there is a volatility or ATR based position size that I'm using at the start of the trade so that when I trade lean hawks and I'm trading gold and I'm trading Korean bonds, the expected volatility or the expected ATR that I would make from those markets is equally distributed across the portfolio. And I don't want to be having only half the risk in lean hawks and twice the risk in Korean bonds. I want that to be the same. Now the question is, uh, the trade develops, you have it on, 
right, in a diversified portfolio with long and short positions. I mean, the three of us, we're talking with our portfolios, we're talking a diversified long and short position portfolio. It's not long bonds and long equities. It's not 60-40 and it's certainly not 100% long equities, right? So my point is, um, why why is there a, a, a force need or it sounds like many people think like this is this is the holy grail somebody has told me about ongoing volatility control and ongoing volatility based position sizing and because i've read it somewhere and it produces this more smooth kind of like volatility experience this is what i should be doing but what is the cost of doing that you know why why just take it for granted that this is a good thing to do why do you have to touch your position all the time if volatility changes volatility is a mean reverting process you know it you know it may go to a new regime and cluster there for a while but in general it's mean reverting so you're upping and downing your position size over the course of you know your expected holding period of that trade and so i'd really encourage people to when they test their systems to have a system that just does the trades the system trades right here's a new high you buy here's a new low you sell right keep the position wait for the exit that's it that's what you're doing now count all the volatility adjustment trades just those independent of anything else that's going on in the system count them and see what they do to your portfolio let me know yeah i mean i've researched that as well um and um it does depend on the speed of your system. So if you're trading really slowly, uh, then obviously adding a volatility adjustment will increase your costs. Um, and obviously you can do smart things like you know buffering and smoothing to, to try and uh, reduce the, the cost that you're paying when you're adjusting your volatility. Um, I mean, if, if so let, let's put it, say you've got a really simple system, which is where you're, you're just using a stop loss for your exit. Um, I think it's fine to um, leave your, your your volatility, measured volatility fixed and therefore your position size fixed if you also leave your stop loss fixed. Um, if you then if you then obviously go into a situation where volatility goes up, um, you really you, you really ought to th- in theory reduce your position and also increase the size of your stop loss. Um, if you do one and not the other, then that's a mismatch. Um, but if you don't do either, then you will have a risk that you'll, you know, you, you'll prematurely exit the position because the volatility has gone up, um, and there's more likelihood you'll hit your stop. Um, but so that you know, there's, there will always be a mismatch there. So it it is theoretically the right thing to do. Um, I think the difference is for the long only investor who who uses um, volatility scaling, particularly that which then goes into cash, which is I think is this idea of a guy. Which he calls dual, a dual momentum system. I don't know if you've seen this. It's Gary Antonacci. That's right, Garrett, Gary's book. So he has this so-called dual momentum system, which is basically like a 60-40 portfolio that also goes into cash um, when when there's a downtrend in both bonds and equities. Um, now, similarly, if you if you one thing I've looked at is um, what I call um, a sort of 60-40 portfolio with a momentum overlay, um, where which is allowed to go into cash and then one that isn't. Um, and the one that's that's um, allowed to go into cash has a higher sharp ratio. Obviously, has a lower risk, average risk, because it's going into cash. The average risk falls, um, but um, the 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 actual absolute return is lower because 
you know you're you're getting sharp ratio through reduced risk but you're, you're obviously you're not getting the um, you know a higher return you're getting a lower return because all the times you're in cash is is dragging down your performance um so it's this this constant fight we have in finance about you know the return versus risk um issue um and uh, it's very easy for us because we we leverage futures traders um but for the long only guys it's it's a lot more complicated because they can't use leverage so they either have to be fully invested all the time um or sometimes go into cash um uh, which will give them probably a higher sharp ratio at least that's what my research indicates probably give them a smoother return profile um but on the downside in the long run they probably will make less money yeah i'm sitting here and i'm listening to your arguments and i you know obviously both sides uh, are, are are valid and i know of course we've talked about this many times uh, moritz does it one way and and on our side we do it um uh, another way and so do um, you, you, you do you continuously adjust your positions of volatility then well we adjust it for the risk so this is different right to some extent right we uh, have found a number of years ago that uh, you know Uh, you need to try and find a way to uh, adjust your risk budget to the conditions, to the environment. And of course, it's taken us decades to to find a way to do it. Um, but in the last seven years, we found a way to essentially have a variable risk budget. That means, in theory, when there are good conditions for trend following, we should have our risk budget at the highest level to the to the max Uh And then when there are more challenging periods, we should have uh, a lower risk budget. So that's the that's the that's the idea. And of course, you can't guarantee that that's always going to be uh, the case. But uh, on on our side, I think what we found from our research is that doing it that way, we can deliver the same performance, but with 25% less uh, volatility, and that's meaningful. So, so on one side, I would say that um, you know I would pose this question because was what Morris was saying. You know, why don't you count all the costs of your adjustment trades and 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 performance of your adjustment trade? I mean, I don't I don't know that we we don't have that data because we don't we're not volatility targeting, and I think that's a different thing than than having a risk budget that is variable. All I can say from the data that we run on our side is that we can see that we have been able to lower the risk and deliver the same return. Of course, there's a couple of other improvements we've found over the years, but essentially our sharp ratio that used to be uh, at the same level as the industry, probably 0.3, since these changes is about double that. So. And and we certainly haven't lost anything in terms of uh, the performance we've delivered uh, to our peers. Um, so I can't say whether that you know uh, is is giving us uh, all that difference. Um, but what I can say is that look at least from my point of view, looking at the evidence, I do think it makes sense to um, in some way, shape, or form take into account changes in volatility and risk and correlations um, as you go through your 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 trade um, if nothing else you could argue maybe that if you don't change anything you would expect higher volatility in your returns compared to people who manage you know who change the position size along so 
if we can just deliver the same returns as as before, but we can deliver it with lower volatility, then it in, in itself, I think, is an improvement that uh, most investors would would prefer. Um, but it, do, it but I don't know if if we would make uh, more or less money on, in an absolute uh, term uh, with or without. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to be. You know, you're, you're saying, Niels, you're not using volatility control, and I appreciate that. And it's a different type of risk control, maybe using very valued risk, or I, I don't know what it is. But, you know, when, when I just look at the, the normal volatility control, I mean, what happens to my portfolio is that it increases the average loss when I look at my trade statistics, those trades. Now, I appreciate what what Rob has said is it depends on trading speed. I guess that is a very valid point, you know, whether you're doing that on a more shorter term system or a more longer term system. And I'm pretty convinced that it also depends on what markets you trade and how diversified your portfolio is. Now, my portfolio, I'd say, is pretty diversified. I'm trading markets such as lumber and oats and milk and, you know, all that type of stuff, commodities. And, you know, I... I'd, I'd say that if you have a, um, say, a stronger allocation to equity markets, which some CTAs have, right? They're, they're trading a lot of equity indices. You know, statistically speaking, apparently the distribution of equity returns is, um, is negatively skewed. And, you know, there's a case to be made that, oh, yeah, when they're going down, reducing size, because, you know, that inc during a period of high volatility is a good thing to do. And then when they turn around and everything is running smoothly and volatility decreases, that is normally a bull market, you're long, well, then, you know, you're having uh, larger position sizes on. So for the equities, it, it, it seems to be a thing that produces uh, kind of like an outperformance. But I don't really see the same effects on FX. I don't see the same effects on commodities. I don't see the same effects on bonds necessarily bonds necessarily i say that because it's been a one-way street it's very tough to say that it you know is the right thing to do there if it is ever the right thing so um that's that's why i'm pretty like look i i have a diversified portfolio like i said it's long and short and and even though you know there is a little bit of a period of high volatility you know over you know periods of time it tends to be around the volatility that i'm targeting anyways and i'm i'm not really uh uh too cute about the fact that you know oh one week i had five percent more vol than the other week well so what it doesn't really matter to me it, that that doesn't trigger a change in my position size yeah i mean can i can i of jump course in? just you can Rob, yeah. but just i want to answer one thing um just want to say of course as as you know uh moritz we we are fully diversified as you are uh, in terms of uh, markets um and and actually probably uh, a few more uh, um, on on the um, on the ag side but but i would want to say to you that i'm not even sure that the thing about the equities would help because as you also know if volatility is low and you're gonna have massive position size you also have the biggest losses when they do these weird things as we saw in feb 18 and in march of 2020 so oh, i'm not, sure. I'm, it know, I'm not the even risk, sure the cliff risk yeah. right you have the biggest position size on when it exactly when it, when before it you get into trouble and i think actually Moritz, and this is the thing and the, and i think this is really important i think when it comes to risk management nowadays and i'd love to hear your thoughts about this as well rob i mean i personally think that it's moved on a little bit from the old style classical trend following to become a little bit more of a statistical um, exercise in how you manage risk and where you have to take into account all the moving parts 
um, the, their correlation, not just the volatility of the individual pieces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it's a little bit more advanced than just saying, "Oh yeah, I'm going to adjust my position, quote unquote, my single position based on changes in volatility." I'm not sure that that's going to work either. I think you have to look at it more holistically, actually, if you want to make it work. Rob, yeah, what are yeah, your no, it's it's interesting. I think the part of the problem is when when I try and justify. Um, this this position I've you know my other kind of you know my view if you like um, is is I am drawn to talking about financial markets and I'll always pull out the example of something like the VIX, which obviously is a very extreme example because it it's a market where the negative skew is is just you know it makes equities look like a walk in the park it's absolutely horrific um, and it, it's very hard to say that if you you know if you start off let's say you're you're lucky and you start off being short VIX um, a couple of months ago. Um, and VIX is at, at 15 or something, um, and you know, don't know why you'd have that position on because <laughs> there was no reason to. But let's suppose you were lucky and you were short VIX. Um, you got the right side, side, the positions on the correct um, side, if you like. Vol, vol of that is low, um, so you'd have probably a reasonable size position on. So um, I mean, I'm not got a big portfolio, but I might be short, say, five contracts. Um, and then the thing goes to 75. Um, which is obviously fantastic from a profitability point of view, but it's it's very hard for me to say I should still be short five contracts when you know the the volatility of of, of the VIX price has, has absolutely exploded. Um, no, so what what vol scaling does in a kind of theoretical sense is it turns returns that that aren't normally distributed into returns that are more like normally distributed. Um, because if you if you look at the, um, the the distribution of returns of financial assets, particularly you know the financial assets, not the commodities, particularly equities, and particularly something like like VIX, where you have these so-called fat tails and and, and the, the negative skew and, and what have you, um, if you then just do something really simple, which is just take a a position that is constant in terms of risk budget. Um, so you're not you're not you've got no forecasting power in there. All you're doing is scaling the position according to the volatility changing. So it's kind of just the volatility scaling piece of, of your you know your CTA product. Nothing else. No no trend following. No, nothing like that. Um, and then you look at the the returns from doing that. You end up with something that's much closer to a normal distribution. Um, so that that's kind of the the reason why it, it kind of theoretically makes sense now. I guess that the difference between theory and practice is, as Moritz will say, well, that's the theory, but actually, when you actually do this in reality, you've got a big diversified portfolio. Um, and in, in reality, we, you know, we're never going to be in a situation where our actual returns come out purely Gaussian anyway. And in any case, who cares? Who really wants that? You know, we, 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 for a start, investors want to see positive skew from us. So investors would actually be a bit a bit cross if our, our returns were symmetric. One of the reasons they, they buy into the CTA product is because it, it should have a positive skew of returns. Um, and you know, maybe by doing this vol scaling you're taking some of that away. Um, and the for me personally actually another issue is because my positions are quite small, vol scaling actually has not much of a practical effect. So it will in the in the extreme example of the VIX trade well I'll go from being short five contracts to being perhaps short one. Um, but on a, you know, ninety percent of the time, the vault, you know, I'll be short two contracts or something, and the vault scaling will go between saying, oh, you should be short two point two contracts or short one point eight contracts, so it doesn't actually produce any actual trading. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm always, 
a little bit skeptical about doing th- doing things that or, or or kind of dropping things that have a good theoretical justification and a reason why they make sense because when i look at the the back test of the evidence i say well this isn't making much difference um I'm, i like to do things where they make good sense and where there's this you know where where there's this good empirical evidence um yeah it's it's uh I think I'm going to carry on doing it if it's okay with with you, Moritz. But I can I can kind of see <laughs> I can kind of see where you're coming from and and saying and kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, you know, we're not scientists. Um, you know, we're 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 trying to uh, we're not we're not that bothered about whether our, our volatility is hitting the target bang on every time. Yeah, exactly. Because look, I mean, of course, I mean, um, it, it the the good thing about it is everybody's doing it in a slightly different way. You know, some people include volatility control or value at risk and this, that, and the other thing, and that's all fine with me. I, I don't want to critique it really too much. If you know, it, at the end of the day, people need to trade in the way that's good for them, that they can agree with themselves that this is the way they trade. They can stick to their system and follow it. Because if you do something that leads to you not sticking to your system, you don't win anything. But what maybe maybe the the final point for me on that is um, the best risk management tool that I've ever discovered that works for me, you know, above and beyond volatility control and all that other stuff is the stop loss. There's an initial stop loss and there's a trading stop. This is fantastic risk management. And the question is, do I really need more than that? And I know about what you've said, Rob, is is absolutely correct. You, you know, you put a trade on volatility the next day all of a sudden doubles, right? The probability now that your stop is being hit has increased. But I've put a position on and I size it in such a way that it risks a certain percentage of equity in my portfolio at the time I put it on. If I now touch that trade and I half it in size the next day, then I've made a decision to say, oh, I now don't want to risk 1%, I want to risk 50 basis points, say. Why? Only because volatility has increased a bit? I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. Because like you say, we're looking to produce these lopsided returns. We're not living in this Gaussian world. And maybe this is good that, you know, the assets aren't Gaussian. They don't have a Gaussian distribution. That's good for us trend followers. And then I also come back and say, ah, you know what? One of the reasons, I guess, trend following works so well is because it's emotionally so difficult and so counterintuitive for human beings to do it that way, to buy the highs. Look at the chart and say, it's made a new high. It's never been more expensive. Let's buy it. That's a difficult thing to do to begin with, right? So you're taking all these uncomfortable positions. And by not volatility controlling, it makes it a little bit more uncomfortable, right? Because I have these periods of, oh, yeah, it's a little bit whoppy right now, right? Stuff's moving. I can make myself emotionally more balanced and go out and play around to tennis by reducing my position size in half. But I also remember that a lot of the stuff that makes me the money is because I am in uncomfortable positions. And many times they just pay for so many things that, you know, I'm really happy with that. I mean, had I vol controlled, my uh, short size in the energies would be much, much less, right? I'm, I'm making money because I have a still fairly decently sized short position in crude. And uh, why not? Why not indeed? And by the way, I would say from a completely different point of view, and that is if you're doing kind of DIY trend following, then it's much more complicated to do the volatility uh, part as well because then you have to actually have many more trades uh, every single day then it's much easier just to stick it in 
put your stop in, as Moritz says, and 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 wait for the next morning and see what happens, so to speak. So uh, there could be practical, impl- uh, you know, implications uh, as well. And, and also, people. I mean, just uh, and and then I'll stop really, guys. But um, every everything that has to do with risk management. I just said that I love the stop as a risk management tool. Right? But the, the stop is a stop. I said it. It is a function of the ATR, so it does incorporate volatility. Right, but then that's it. But all the things you know that you do thereafter to your portfolio, be it based on value at risk, or you you know say you calculate your total open risk. So if all the positions simultaneously in one go move to the stop, how much would you lose? Right, and maybe that produces a number that you find is too high for your liking. And you therefore then say, oh, I'm reducing my position sizes so that the max loss in such such a scenario is, say, 20 or 25%. All of this is in some shape or form a hidden response to volatility and volatility control. Not an ongoing daily, oh, I'm, re- I'm responding to realized volatility. But if you did something like that, you would probably do it because there has been a large move in the markets, right, that has now created a greater distance from the price of the futures contract to the stop, which is why risk has increased. And that happens because your trading stop didn't trail as fast. You know, it's been a very volatile move. Now you're reducing your positions. That's a form of fall control. But you probably don't think about it that way when you put that risk control measure on. You think, oh, yeah, I, I just want to keep my risk under control. But what you've just is this, you've, you've done a, a vol control trade. I'm just going to finish by agreeing with you guys, because I think that's always a nice way to finish. And uh Niels, I definitely agree that for someone who's running a system manually, that, that the simple idea of a stop loss is definitely much easier. Keep, you know, put a stop loss on, size the position, and then just leave it on until you hit the stop. Uh, and I, in fact, run, there's one part of my portfolio I actually run in exactly that way. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's and it's certainly a huge amount better than doing doing no form of risk control at all. Absolutely. It's, it's probably 95% as good as the more sophisticated stuff that that I personally prefer. It's it's definitely uh, definitely you know a good way of doing things. I I will slightly disagree with Moritz's last comment just for the fun of it, <laughs> because I'm not sure that moving stops is a vol control. I mean the idea of having a total uh, loss, uh, maximum open loss. I I you know I like the idea and I think it could make sense to. Um, you know, change accordingly. But if you're, I mean, if you you could just move your stops as well and keep your positions if you wanted to, somehow. I mean, you could. You don't have to necessarily change the positions. You can do both. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but, when you, uh, when you move the stop, you um, you know, if if it's an ATR based stop, then you're changing the amount of risk that you have. Uh, you know, the the target amount of risk that you want to do with that trade. Something yeah. has to give. But yeah. anyway, it's, you know, like I say, at the end of the day, people need to design systems that they feel comfortable with. And if and when they include volatility control and somebody feels comfortable that way, then I think this for them is a good thing because at least they have a system. I think the most important thing about all of this is have a system, especially during times like these, you know, have a game plan and a roadmap so that, you know, when it's a little bit more volatile or massively more volatile, that you know, okay, here's here's my guide. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not stressed out over it. I have thought about it. This is what's looking like. Just do the trades, right? If you can stick to that, whether that's well controlled or not, you probably have a leg up against many of the other traders out there who have no system and no control, and then they're in a paralysis type of moment uh, in March, 
um, with most of the time very negative effects on their portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move on, if you don't mind, um, to a question we had in this week from Gary, um, because I think it kind of touches on a lot of things that uh, one is relevant for the people listening in, but also some of the topics we we kind of discuss. Uh, so I want to honor his uh, question. He writes in, I trade equities, bonds, commodities, uh, ags and forex. I have three equity indices, three bonds, three commodities and six FX pairs, three emerging market ETFs and three um, agriculturals. Um, I don't, and then he says, I don't trade the opens with London open due to the time difference in my portfolio. So in total 21 products, which is a diversified portfolio in my opinion, do I need to have 30 or 40 products even though a lot of them are just highly correlated? So that's the first question. But I'm gonna give it to Rob actually because I'm sure people have heard Morris and me talk about this, so why don't we just uh, ask Rob, what do you think to get? So it's going from about 20 markets to about 30 markets, right? 30 or 40, 30 or 40 he says, yeah. yeah. Um, with, well, if you, if you sort of stick with the constraint that, that you, you, know, you have to stay in the same time zone, then there's probably not going to be a lot of value from adding another 10 or 15 markets. Um, the, you know, you, you might get it in terms of expectation, you might get an extra 5% on your, your performance. Um, and uh, I'm guessing that, that if he's sticking to one time zone, he's probably running his system manually, um, not, not automatically. Um, perhaps he's having to do the trades manually, the position generations being done automatically. Um, so, you know, every, every extra market has to justify itself in terms of, you know, the workload. Whereas, um, for for me and I, I guess for you guys, um, adding an extra market is has almost no cost because it's just another line of computer code. Um, now, if if he was to, Gary was to 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 be able to trade um, a wider set of time zones, um, then I would I would say there's probably more like he's more likely to get something like um, a fifteen to twenty percent um, performance boost from adding in expectation um, from adding you know an extra. 15 markets because he will be able to get um, you know more diversification um, I mentioned earlier for example that I trade uh, the Korean bonds um, I mean those things are trading while I'm still asleep um, and uh, I could obviously couldn't do that um, if I if I wasn't fully automated um, but but you know that they, they are a relatively uncorrelated market both to the rest of the bonds and also generally so um, it's it's worth me having those in my portfolio um, so yeah, if it, I, I guess if Gary wants to to stick to trading manually in the U.S. time zones, then he's prop he's got a pretty good set of markets there already. I'd say um, if he if he wants to widen his horizons a bit more, then then it it probably would be worth adding some more. Yeah. Okay. Now the second question from Gary is based on my model. I initiate a position at close. Here is my dilemma. Let's say I get a long I go I get a long on daily chart but weekly chart is showing me that the instrument is still bearish or neutral. Should I ignore the signal? Um, and I'm trying to read here. Uh, it is simple, low probability bet, and I don't see strong moves in my model in most cases until weekly charts aligns with the daily. Super strong moves come uh, when monthly and weekly aligns with daily. So should I restrict to only one time frame and take all signals as they come and completely ignore bigger pictures? Or should I adjust my risk accordingly, depending on how relative strength based on higher time frames? Now, obviously, that's a slightly different question because I think now we're talking about, you know, different time frames. And I think we can all agree that, 
using different time frames is a good idea because exactly as you say, Gary, you're going to get dig- different signals and different noise, frankly, from using different time frames. But uh, again, Rob if or Moritz, if you have anything to uh, to add here to to Gary, maybe a s- simple example of what you think he he, sh- he should be doing in terms of time frames, uh, feel free. So. The, the way I would trade is that effectively my position is going to be based on an average of what the different time frames are doing. Um, so if if all three are, are kind of lined up and all three are buying, say, then in, in effectively I'd have a really strong position on a really big position on. If it's if the daily's in one going one way and the monthly and the weekly are going the other way, then then my position would be much smaller. Um, but I guess it depends on how Gary's actually running his system. So it sounds like he's running it more with what I call discrete positions. In other words, he sees a signal, he buys, he then holds till it hits a stop or, or whatever, as we've been discussing, and then closes. So I guess um, there's, there's kind of two different options here, really. One is that he could he could run it as th- effectively three different systems. In other words, divide his capital up um, into a, like a daily, a weekly, and a monthly system, um, maybe I mean just as, as a rule of thumb, maybe a third of his capital in each, um, and then and then sort of treat those as three individual um, trades. Um, now that's going to be probably a bit, quite a bit of work um, if he is running it pretty manually. So he may not want to do that. Um, alternatively, he he could just just say, okay, I'm not going to open up a position until two out of three or three out of three of these things agree with each other. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not not do the week. You know the weak situation where where only one out of three are, are agreeing with each other uh, and filter out those trades. Um, and as as to which as to which you know you should do the two out of three or the three out of three. Well, obviously the three out of three is going to be very selective and you'll be doing much fewer trades. Um, but they will be, as he says, kind of higher probability. That's sort of the equivalent in my system of of all you know all the forecasts agreeing with each other and having a a larger position on. Um, so uh, he, if, if he's got the um, the, te- the technology, he should try back testing both of those, see which works for him. Um, or alternatively, he could maybe just try running it with 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 two out of three. And if if that's resulting in too many entries, then then just scale it back and just go when they all agree. Yeah. Last question from Gary. Um, I think maybe that's something that Moritz might want to jump in on this one. Um, and Gary writes, is pyramiding a bad strategy? I know Turtles did it in the past, though their risk was 200 basis points per two ATR, which is very high. By risking 20 basis points um, per ATI and by per ATR and adding on pullbacks, returns can be increased. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know that we can verify those numbers about the Turtles, but maybe you have some insights. Um, Marts. Uh, don't have the insights on the turtle numbers, but um, you know, pyramiding I think gets a bad rap. It, it it sounds bad when you do it when you have like this long equity portfolio and you you know you keep on buying and buying and buying and then eventually the market turns and you have a relatively large loss. But I mean, with the way that I trade is um, I have and I combine in my portfolio different trading speeds. Um, so you may think about that. You know, breakouts of. Um, over different look back periods, you know, 100 day breakout, 200 day breakout, 300 day breakout, you know, those type of things. And while in some cases, and and actually often, uh, they uh, tend to happen at the same time, you know, so the 100 day breakout is a 200 day breakout at the same moment in time, but it's not always the case, right? And so, um, you know, it may 
you may call that pyramiding if you know there is an environment where I'm taking the 100 day breakout and then you know a little bit later the market continues to go up and I take the 200 day breakout and you know then the 300 and all the other things that I trade that is like a pyramiding type of trade you know I get longer as the market moves higher and higher and the trade develops and um, that is to me not a bad thing I don't give it a bad rap this is a diversified portfolio of trading speeds and sometimes uh, the one works better than the other but having them together is improving my risk adjusted returns any thoughts Rob on this or pretty much agree yeah I, I pretty much agree um, that that's very similar to, to what I do um, and uh, it, it also works with the kind of non-trend uh, signals like so for example carry um, if you just think about FX carry Generally speaking, you want to have a, a bigger position um, when the interest rate differential between the two currencies is larger. Um, now, there is a little bit of a kind of a tail effect in that, you know, after very, very strong trends, it's more likely that, you know, they've been going on for a long time, it's more likely there'll be a pullback. Um, and similarly, if in if in carry, if the interest rate differential is very large, then it, it's it's quite likely that that you've you've got a you know an emerging market currency perhaps that's in in serious trouble. Um, so some people actually, and I have done this in the past, some people do kind of actually reduce their positions when their signals are really strong, um, and that may also be um, because you just you know you, you you don't want to have too much leverage or too much concentration in one position as well. Um, I I don't do that anymore, but I do I do cap my position, so um, I don't allow my my forecast to go above twice the value of, of the average forecast. Um, so in, in practical terms, um, for Gary, that means yeah, pyramiding's fine up to a point. Um, you know, don't just keep adding and adding and adding, and, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, your position will be very large, the trend will break, and you'll be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Good points, guys. Uh, thanks for the question, Gary. And as always, everyone can uh, write us uh, at info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to answer your questions. Uh, we still have one question from Michael hanging and I'm going to leave it hanging. Michael, sorry about that, but your question is relevant for the guest we tried to get on last week, but for technical reasons, it didn't work. I'm sure he'll be back soon. So I'm just going to hang on to that, Michael, uh, a little bit longer. Uh, let me do a quick run through of the um, performance where we stand right now in in terms of the various indices we follow. Uh, the BTOP50 index is up 52 basis points uh, for the month of April, uh, but down 1.76 for the year. Uh, the SOCGEN CT index is up 64 basis points for the month and up slightly 9 basis points for the year. The SOCGEN trend index is up 77 basis points as of Thursday and up 3.09% for the year. And the SOCGEN short-term traders index is down just a few basis points so far this month and up 3.84% uh, for the year. And finally, the bridge alternatives index, the flat fee index, uh, is up 43 basis points and up 3.63% for the year as of Thursday. A little bit of an outlier. Interesting that the beta 50 index is down for the year. Um, it is the 20 largest CTAs open to new investors. So I don't know if size in this case is is um, keeping performance down a little bit uh, this year at least. Um, any other thoughts, guys, uh, that you want to bring up before... Um, we wrap it up. Obviously, you'll be back in a month's time or so, Rob. So if there's any questions, people already want to line up um, for Rob for uh, next uh, month, which is mid-May or so, uh, then do send them as well. We'll keep them safe for you until he's back. Um, but anything else you want to bring up 
final thoughts? Uh, no, uh, just to say that that um, when when I come back on, it'll actually be my birthday. So if anyone wants to send any cake, uh, that will also be very <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Right, virtual cake. Well, we can't, you know, social distances, Rob. Come on. <laughs> we have to sing you a happy birthday song. Ooh, a new challenge. Nils, you go Morris. first. You guys are. have got a month to kind of warm up your voices and practice that. Exactly, yeah, we'll, we'll oil them oh up for dear. you. Oh dear, I knew I shouldn't have asked that question. Any final thoughts? Okay, yeah, so yeah. with that in mind, we're going to wrap up for this week. Of course, as always, if you haven't had uh, a chance to go and get the ultimate guide to the best investment books, in which, by the way, you can find some of Rob's books, of course, you can do that also on the website, toptradersonplug.com. And um, as, as always, if you have a few minutes to spare uh, and uh, have time to leave a rating and review on iTunes, that really does help uh, other people discover the podcast. And it certainly helps us and we appreciate it very much. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, keep staying safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.